Greetings members old and new, and welcome back to the Possibility Department, your one-stop shop for the modern-day occultist. If you find yourself entertaining the possibilities of anything and everything when it comes to the great unknown, then this is the place for you. My name is Luciana and I'll be your host as we dive into what I like to call spiritual and psychological templates for living our lives, interpreting our lives, and creating change in our lives. Take what you like, toss what you don't, and remember that what we talk about on this podcast is just as far-fetched as the concept of any higher power. Alright, let's talk about some weird sh- Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Possibility Department Podcast. It has been a while. If you're new here and you're not aware, I am currently only doing these public podcasts one time per month. It used to be twice a month, and I've since taken that down to one so I can focus better on my content over on Patreon. That is where I provide all of my content. I was going to say the bulk, but almost everything is over there. So that's why I only appear here once a month. However, uh, if you're not already following me on Instagram head over there and uh, we can chat on Instagram. So that being said, it's been a while since I've sat at the mic. I took October off of content creation mostly. I had like pre-created all of my content uh, for October and I did a set it and forget it method where it just kind of went out by itself and I didn't really have to touch it so much. So this is one of the first times I'm kind of sitting down and recording again and it feels nice. At some point I do want to do some form of content on taking time and space for relaxation and the magic and the inspiration and that because I definitely feel more juiced up and more inspired and if there's one thing I talk about a lot is that uh, we often do better work in a shorter amount of time when we've taken the time to recharge, uh, which I've talked about extensively in the more personal episodes on Patreon as well. But with that, I'm excited for today's episodes, but as you know, before we go any further, I can't continue without thanking my sponsor-level patrons over in the Occultist Lab on level 3, so thank you so much for supporting me. Hannah, Sydney, Brianna, Jewel, Amy, Susie, welcome back Susie, Mariella, Erica, Brittany, Ingrid, Tara, Myriad, Noel, and Sarah. Thank you so much for your support over on level 3 on Patreon, and without any further ado, today I want to talk about divination and how broad it is and its many forms across time and cultures and people and nations and what is the common thread? Why do we do it? Why do we find shapes and patterns and meaning in everyday life and why do we do it over and over again across time and culture? So let's start where we always start, right? We always start with a nice basic definition that we can jump off of and then make our own meanings, as we so often do here on this podcast. Um, And according to the Open Education Sociology Dictionary, the definition of divination is the art or practice of using supernatural power to foresee the future or answer a question. Examples include scrying, looking into something such as a crystal ball to aid in divination. 
Now, divination is popularly seen as a form of telling the future, it's often seen as prophecy, and it is used in those ways. Historically, it's definitely been used in those ways, and even now it's used in those ways. There are definitely systems of astrology and tarot readers who really focus on predictive divination. Now, the act of divination is divining, right? In essence, I see it as sort of finding answers and finding insight. And so modernly, I would say that generally it is mostly used as a tool for insight and getting answers for individual purposes. I personally, this is a personal uh, interpretation, so to throw that disclaimer out there, this is personal, I like to see it as what's called the energetic mirror. I don't know who coined that term. I've been using it for a long time. But when I do a reading for myself or for a client, I always see the reading as a mirror of what is at play currently. What patterns are at play? How can I work with what's going on instead of work against it? It's as if I were to hold up a mirror to, quote, the energy, unquote, in your life and what's at play currently. How can you work with the tide instead of push against it? So, that is how I see it. That is how I mostly use it. I personally don't really use anything that is predictive. However, even though I do readings with the intention of them not being predictive, in many cases they end up being predictive. Don't ask me how that works or what the dynamic is of that or if it's a coincidence. I have no clue, but it is a little spooky. So the word divination for you might conjure up images of tarot readings, oracle readings, astrologers predicting, maybe throwing bones, throwing runes. These are all ones that are more popular. Um, but today we're going to focus more on the fluid interpretation of shapes. And it's not necessarily that we're going to go into each one across history because we would be here quite literally until the end of time, but we're more going to theorize on why this is something we do and why modernly it might still be useful. So things like egg divination, if you've ever seen that, um, I think it's called ovomancy or I've seen it oomancy as well, oomancy. Um, that's something that I've actually done. I bought a, after I did a DNA test and found out that I had like a lot of Portuguese ancestry, which I guess was no surprise being Brazilian, <laughs> but I bought, um, a book that had like some Portuguese folk magic in it and one of them was to crack an egg on the I think the eve of the solstice and in the morning you would look at the shapes in the egg um, and that was I mean that was a really cool practice that actually lined up with another form of scrying that I had done six months ago that I forgot about and I got the same image both times unbeknownst to me um, I went back and cross-referenced the two and realized that I got the same image again. So it's going to be about looking at shapes and interpreting shapes and what does that tell us about ourselves or about what we're projecting onto the world or what is that telling us about the messages that we need to hear but we're not perhaps able to get to ourselves in other ways. I know that sounds loopy, stay with me. But if you think about it in these terms, there's always a part of you that has the good advice, right? There's always a part of you that knows exactly what to do. There's a part of you, it's, it's like when, you know when you get advice 
from someone, from a friend, whether it's, you know, a, a friend or a family member or even a tarot reader or a coach, and you get the advice and it's the most basic advice, but you take it in and you're like, oh, wow, I know this. I'm just not practicing it. You know it, you have that knowledge within, you kind of know what to do. Or a lot of times if you've ever had a reading done, especially if you're buying a reading from someone who doesn't know you, you walk away from that reading usually feeling validated and feeling confirmation of what you already knew. You know, you already knew the patterns you were going through, you already knew the struggles you were having, and a part of you already knew what to do. You just needed to hear it from someone else. You just needed to hear that external validation. Deep within myself, I've known it all along, but I'm just not taking it. I'm just not following it. And so things like this, they provide confirmation, give us access to the part of ourselves that knows what to do, that has the information, that has the inner guidance. It's not to sound woo, but it's within you. So before we move on, I do want to explain scrying really quickly for anyone who doesn't know. Scrying can also be uh, called simply seeing or sometimes peering. The pop culture version of this is, you know, the image of a lady in a dark room looking into a crystal ball, right? Um, but scrying is used in many other ways with many other mediums as well. People scry in basins of water. Um, there are ancient forms of scrying in wine. You can scry with fire or a flame, uh, which is something that I've done, which is honestly a really cool <laughs> experience. Um, don't stare into the flame too long, though. Your eyes might get a little weird. <laughs> Do it quickly. Just <laughs> So scrying is, is like peering into something um, and then trying to find uh, shapes. So usually when someone scries into, you don't see this in the movies. Um, in the movies, it's usually just a lady in a dark room with a crystal ball, right? But the thing is, is that you can't really see any images in a crystal ball if it's just a stagnant crystal ball by itself. And so in many cases of people who actually do practice scrying with a crystal ball, you'll see that they'll have like a candle flame. Um, so there's something to reflect light into the crystal ball to form the shapes. And people do this with any kind of uh, polished rock as well. So the image that comes to mind for me for this, maybe it's just because it's embedded in my childhood. Do you remember at the end of the first Harry Potter when he's like passed out next to the Sorcerer's Stone and the Sorcerer's Stone has like the reflection of the flames in it? Uh... Is that a real scene from that movie or did I dream that? I'm pretty sure that's a real scene from that movie. Anyways, that's the image that comes to mind, right? You would take a polished stone or a rock or something and place it near a flame so that you can see the reflection of the flames in this rock and you can determine different shapes from it. Now that all sounds really fantastical, right? It sounds beautiful and magical and to some might sound a little far-fetched. So with that, if you're of the far-fetched mind, I get it. I'm with you. Sometimes and sometimes not. As we know, some days I wake up and some days I wake up and I'm like, magic is real and God is real and um, everything is fantastical. And there are other days that I wake up and I'm like, nope, none of it. So... <laughs> That is where my brain lives. My brain lives in that space, in that nice little in-between. So I'm with you, and I'm not with you, and I'm all of the above. So let's let's dive into a more psychological aspect of it, shall we? 
I'm gonna say a name that you're probably gonna recognize, and it is Herman Rorschach. I always feel like I'm saying his name wrong. A Swiss psychiatrist who was born in 1884 in Zurich, Switzerland. Hermann Rorschach is famous for devising the inkblot test uh, that was used for diagnosing psychopathology, although um, his creation of that test seems to be based on the work of someone called Seisman Hens, um, who, according to Britannica, studied the fantasies of his subjects using inkblot cards. Herman Rorschach also seemed to be somewhat of an artistic and interpretive person. Uh, according to Britannica as well, it says that he had considered art school before becoming a psychiatrist. And fun fact, when he was a secondary school student, his nickname was Kleck, which meant inkblot. Uh, it says here because of his interest in sketching, but I saw from another source that it was because of his interest in a Swiss game that also involved ink blots. So, a lot of, a lot of inky action here. And this brings up pop culture images as well, right? Pretty sure we've seen even in cartoons and movies. You know, they show an ink blot, and I think media gives us the idea that. Um, if you are to interpret the inkblot in a darker way, that there's something wrong with your psyche or whatever. Um, if you're not familiar with the inkblot tests, um, the inkblots are these ambiguous blots that really have no meaning. They're supposed to be accidental. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, and I feel like we've all done inkblots when we're kids, right? Or with paint or something like that. You take paint, and then you put it in the center of the paper and then you fold the paper and it creates an equal pattern on both sides. That is what the ink blot is. And then we all look at those ink blots and theoretically we will have different interpretations based on maybe the inner landscape of our minds at that current moment in that snapshot if that makes sense. So before we go any further there, if this is all you listen to of this podcast and you end up turning it off or taking it off for any reason, I don't want you to get the impression that this test is still used. It absolutely is not. Um, and for good reason. It is unreliable because we are interpreting someone else's interpretation. So an example of this that was listed in one of the sources, which I'll link all the sources below, I can't remember which one I read this in, but one of the arguments against it is it's not that it's a negative thing for someone to interpret an inkblot and for us to use that information about how they project meaning onto the world. It's also the fact that the person in the person administering the test is going to have their own subconscious information that they are projecting onto the results. So here's an example. If I'm doing an inkblot test and someone is administering that inkblot test to me and they show me um, the, the inkblot and to me I see a bra, depending on who administered the test, they might see the fact that I viewed a bra as a sexual response or they could see it as, oh, she just saw a piece of clothing, or she saw something that is constricting, or she saw XYZ. So even, even the subconscious information of the person administering the test now comes into play as well, because it's not just my interpretation, it's their interpretation of how I interpreted it. And this is something I've talked about widely in a lot of my deleted podcasts. I actually did, um, I think I did a podcast called Herman Rorschach in the Tarot. And I did another one called 
uh, Freud's psychoanalysis and shadow work. Uh, those were fun ones. And those are on the deleted podcast on Patreon at the $5 level if you want to listen to that. So it's for this reason even that I usually, if I'm being asked, I usually discourage people from buying books that interpret your dreams. And I always give this same example, but um, if I see a peach tree in a dream and you see a peach tree in a dream, it could have two completely different meanings because a peach tree is a symbol that was significant in my childhood that might be synonymous with joy, but maybe you saw a peach tree, I don't know, at the at the cemetery after your grandfather's funeral. And so to you, it means something completely different. So even that, even even something as, as specific as that, if I were to show you an ink blot and you see a bear, I, as a, as a psychiatrist or as a psychoanalyst, might associate the bear with, I don't know, with strength or hibernation or all of the, you know, big societal themes that we imprint onto the bear and its mythology and its lore. But a bear to you might mean something completely different. Maybe you you called your dad Papa Bear. I don't know. <laughs> so we're entering a territory that is very fluid. However, there's still value in there. So there's an article that was uh, posted on BBC that was written by a Dr. Mike Drayton. Now, uh, Dr. Mike Drayton is a clinical psychologist, and I do want to add that this article is from 2012. Uh, However, it's an opinion piece, I guess you could say, by a clinical psychologist on um, his specific views on this test. And I understand that I'm kind of, I'm going a little loopy here with the direction of how this is going, but the inkblot test to me ties back into divination and how we can use it as a tool for intuition. So bear with me. Um, So I just want to read a couple of excerpts from this article to just give a little more weight to what I'm trying to say here. So this is a direct quote. It says, I first came across the Rorschach inkblot test when I was training to be a clinical psychologist. I was shown a series of cards containing inkblots and asked to say what they looked like to me. The tester would ask, what does this look like? I would say a bat. And I remember thinking that this felt more like a tarot reading than a proper psychometric test. However, when the test was scored and interpreted, it produced a scarily accurate profile of my personality. It knew things about me that even my mother didn't know. I've been a fan, if rather a skeptical one, ever since. So in the article to summarize, he goes on to talk about how the inkblot test is a projective test. You ask the person you're questioning to tell you what they see in the inkblot, but the information that they're giving you about the inkblot actually provides more information about how they project meaning onto the world, which really is a lot of information to get in uh, in one little sitting, right? Because how we project meaning onto the world is everything. It's, It's how we live. It's how we perceive. It's how we interact with others. Because everything is how we project meaning. Everything is reframing. Um, You know, if you've ever had a challenge, then you know the power of going into the challenge, like constantly telling yourself, oh, this sucks, this is the worst, I hate this so much. Then being able to shift it into, well, what if there's, I don't know, whatever feels nourishing to you, right? What if there's a lesson in this challenge? Or what if I felt like it was really fun to challenge myself this way? Or what if at the end of this challenge, I reward myself with ice cream? Or what if 
we all know the power of those little moments of going into something by projecting a meaning that is inherently not nourishing and then projecting a meaning that is nourishing. And that is not what the Rorschach test measures necessarily, but I'm just saying it's so, it's such a big and valuable piece of information to know how you project meaning onto the world. And it's so valuable to also know that you might have some power to shift it. Uh, uh, We're spinning out. Okay, we're spinning out. Reel it back in, Lucia. I'm reeling it in. So this article does a good job of pointing out, oh, it was this article that made the example of the bra. So I will, I'll link this. Um, But this article does a good job of pointing out the reason why it's really not valid in psychological testing. And so the last excerpt that I want to read for you uh, goes as follows. So he concludes the article by saying, I am also skeptical about the scientific validity of Rorschach. But I do think that it's a useful tool in therapy and coaching as a way of encouraging self-reflection and starting a conversation about the person's internal world. And then he goes on to show an inkblot image um, and gives a very specific example of a client named Samantha, who I'm assuming wasn't named Samantha. I'm going to assume that names were changed for privacy reasons. Um, And how she interpreted it and how he took that information as what was going on in her internal world. So if anything, it's a good jumping off point for insight. So from what I understand, this test was first devised to diagnose uh, what's called abnormal psychology, then later became somewhat of a personality test. And now I think we could say that it's probably almost obsolete except for maybe a psychiatrist like Dr. Mike Drayton who seemed to have an affinity for it. But the reason why this is interesting is because it points to a really ancient phenomena which is finding meaning in the seemingly meaningless, finding meaning in shapes, finding meaning in the everyday blobs and blots and random things that we come across. And so, unfortunately, the only source that I could find for this that has a complete list of all of the methods of divination is Wikipedia. I'm sorry. But, so I will link that below. Um, And I want to say it's like hundreds of different forms of divination, mostly having to do with deriving meaning from shapes. So whether that is in your wine, your coffee, bird poop, animal entrails. I mean, you name it, friend. You name it, someone has divined with it. Wax, lead, needles, nails, knuckle bones. (laughs) The list goes on and on. So as I said, the only place where I could find a complete list, or it might not even be complete, but a very long list of this was on Wikipedia. However, I mean, there's all the names of the different forms of divination, which are confirmable through more um, accurate sources, I guess you could say. So you could do separate searches for each of them and and find that they do have their roots in uh, actual history. So just to name some cool ones, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, um, Oinomancy? Oinomancy um, is the divination by looking at patterns in wine. And this is where, so it was usually practiced by a priestess of Bacchus, the Roman god of wine. Um, How cool to be a god of wine, right? 
Um, so it was practiced by a priestess um, of the Roman god of wine, Bacchus. And you would take wine and you would, sp- well, there were various methods, but one of the methods is that you would spill wine onto like a cloth and then you would study the stains. So again, very similar to an ink blot test, right? Like it's it's some form of liquid that's been spilled or like printed over and you're simply looking at the shapes in an interpretive way and trying to figure out what they say or what you see. Another method I've seen for this is where you look at the bottom of the wine glass or the the basin or the container that the wine was in to see the residue that it left and you read that, which is similar to tea leaf reading, uh, which I did a whole workshop on that's available on level three, the $15 level. Similar to tea leaf reading, you'll drink all your tea and then you'll flip the cup over. And when you flip it back, there's going to be the residue of the the tea leaves stuck to the cup and you will read the the leaves. Now, where these systems of divination um, sort of differentiate is that a lot of them, not all of them, are about reading shapes, right? Like tarot, you're not reading shapes, you're reading the cards. Um, Things like spirit boards or Ouija boards, you're not really reading shapes. But when I say that the majority are reading shapes, I guess it's more in a historical context. If you sort of sift through a lot of the ancient forms of divination, um, a lot of it was interpreting shapes and things. But where these systems differentiate, I would say, is that some have like a specific, almost like a key um, that you can follow where certain things certain shapes have certain meanings or certain combinations have certain meanings and others will be purely interpretive Um, or you can mismatch and do it either way. So an example of this is tea leaf reading, right? Some people do tea leaf reading by following um, a book specifically that it was the first published book in English on tea leaf reading, which was called, oh God, it was by an anonymous person called the Highland Seer teacup reading or something like that. I'll link it. But it's one of the first resources that we have in English about tea leaf reading. And there is an actual key that shows you what shapes in the tea leaves mean what. So some people will actually use one of those keys and then other people will just look at the shapes and interpret it for themselves. I am more of the mind when practicing anything like this, not referring to a key and simply interpreting it for yourself because of individual connections that we have with images that cannot be expressed via, you know, one giant blanket statement key for all of humanity. Yes, a star to everyone might signify like hope or something shiny, but maybe a star to me means something different. So I really cannot use the key that was made for all of humanity when I have a very specific relationship with the image of the star or whatever it is, if that makes sense. Now, with that being said, With that being said, let's suspend all disbelief for a moment. If you are a skeptic, as am I sometimes and sometimes not, (laughs) suspend all disbelief for a moment. And for a moment, let's say that it is 100% true and real and provable that spirit exists. Let's just call it spirit, right? This mysterious force on the other side that we can communicate with that can perhaps help us get through things. Let's say 100% spirit exists, no question about it. Another theory, I guess, is that you can form an individual symbolic language with spirit. And this is something that psychics talk about a lot. Um, And this will feed into a whole Patreon podcast episode I did called What Are Ghosts? 
where I talk about, you know, the structure of, I theorize, I don't want to say talk about, I theorize on like, if ghosts exist, then what is like the structure of the afterlife and what a ghost is. And I even talk about um, some scientists who tried to sort of rationalize what matter they would be made of. It's, it's a fun episode. But psychics or mediums, mediums are people who talk to the dead, right? Will often say that the dead don't have a language like you and me necessarily. It's not like they just appear and just like give you full on conversation. A lot of times they will talk through symbols or um, through feelings, through emotions, through, I don't know, a taste in your mouth or a chill on your neck. It's, it's like it's not the same language that you and I have. And so psychics and mediums often talk about how they create a key. They create sort of a language where if they see a symbol in their mind's eye, it means that the person on the other side wants to say this or wants to do that or is trying to get this message across. So with that in mind, if again, we're suspending disbelief and you wanted to just wholeheartedly, you know, uh, take in the belief that there's something on the other side that we might be able to communicate with, then you could, in essence, create your own symbols and your own keys for what things mean. And people often do this unconsciously as well. Most people in this realm usually have a little list of signs that they see that they know means a certain thing. So I've talked about before how the number 27 is pretty significant to me. That's one that pops up every once in a while. Um, flickering lights is something that is significant to me. Um, certain number combinations or certain weather patterns that happen over and over again can be significant to me. And so these are things that, again, it could mean nothing, but I've also created meaning that I've imprinted on them, and now it means something to me. So with that, in the community, I think we, the community, quote, we often already are creating meanings for different signs and symbols around us. We're just not necessarily doing it consciously. If you've been, you know, into, I guess, spirituality for a while, then maybe you already have like a certain sign that's appeared that you associate with a certain thing. But what if you had a key for that? What if you had a list of symbols and what they mean? And then that way, when you do see a shape in the clouds or a shape in the tree bark or a shape in the foam of your latte or at the bottom of your coffee cup, you have a very specific set language with, quote, spirit, unquote, and you know that that's what it means because you have set that language with kind of this mysterious force. And I know... I know what we sound like. We're going way out there. But the thing is, is that I find these things to be beneficial, whether it's all real or not. And I'll give you an example. This is going to sound really basic and really kind of like blah and not very fun and very cool. But the other day I was at my desk and I had done a really good job all month of uh, relaxing and taking time off. And I found myself feeling guilty and getting back into the pattern of trying to, um, I don't know, try, <laughs> trying to do a bunch of busy work that didn't really mean anything and wasn't really for anything just for the sake of being able to tell myself that I am productive, that I'm doing work. This is an ongoing issue that I have. If you've listened to my more personal episodes on Patreon, you know I've been working on this for years. Um... And so I found myself back into that. I had almost a month of doing really well, allowing myself the time and space to sort of recharge. I had pre-planned all my content, like I said. 
Um, and all of a sudden I found myself back into that spiral of trying to work as much as I could and mostly just doing busy work just for the sake of being able to tell myself that I'm being productive and therefore I have value in this world because otherwise I'm worthless, right? I, I feel like this is a common one. It's a symptom of the society we live in. And so I found myself back in that and I saw these clouds drifting by and there was sort of this hole in the clouds um, this gap that looked like a dolphin. And for me, I associate dolphins both with intelligence and fun. And so to me, that meant work smarter, not harder. And I looked at what I was doing and I realized this is a bunch of busy work. I'm doing it again. This is all a bunch of busy work that is not, it's not going to make me more money. It's not going to you know, promote me or show me to more people. It's not going to form more authentic connections. Like everything that I'm doing is just a bunch of busy work, work smarter, not harder. And so I shut off the laptop and I was done for the night. And the thing is, is that yes, those clouds were probably just random. It probably wasn't a message that was just meant for me. The clouds in the sky probably weren't just forming for me in that one moment. But the act of interpreting a shape acted as this gateway, this, this portal, this bridge, this medium through which I could communicate with myself. Some part of myself knew that I was spiraling back into my old ways and that I needed to pick myself back up and, and realize what I was doing. But whatever part of myself was trying to communicate with me couldn't get to me if that makes sense. We're so multifaceted. There's a lot of yous in there. You know, there's not just one you. There's many of them. <laughs> and whatever part of me knew that I was spiraling couldn't get to me, couldn't communicate with me, couldn't say, hey, snap out of it. You're doing it again. But the act of interpreting that shape snapped me out of it. And that, I always talk about the domino effect of your life, that affected the domino effect. Instead of, you know, waking up from my trance at 11 p.m. and realizing that I had wasted my whole day doing a bunch of nothing and then feeling down on myself and feeling upset that I got back into that pattern, I was able to stop it in that moment because of some clouds passing by. So whether or not there's something mystical going on doesn't really matter. What matters is that it serves as a jumping off point for self-reflection and we all benefit from self-reflection. I think we do. I, I, mean, you, I, I like to stray away from blanket statements because I always feel like they never work. But the one blanket statement I think we can make is that self-reflection is good. It allows us to know ourselves. It allows us to accept ourselves. It allows us to communicate with ourselves, to love ourselves. And the interpretation of shapes allows for that. Yes, anciently it was used as something probably prophetic. Yes, anciently, and especially like in the Middle Ages, uh, predictive systems such as, I don't know, astrology and other forms of divination, they were used to determine, you know, what queens would marry what kings and who would die and good times for birth and so forth. But we can use them now in an individual sense. And we can use them now armed with the knowledge that even in a psychological way, it can be beneficial. So speaking of that, there is a name for this phenomena and it's called pareidolia. Um, and pareidolia, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is the tendency to perceive a specific, often meaningful image in a random or ambiguous visual pattern. 
And if you do a quick search of this, most of the articles you're going to come across are about seeing faces in nature, which is so common for us, right? We see faces in rocks, we see faces in trees, we see faces in rivers and, and, and pebbles and everywhere, especially when we're out in nature. It seems to be a really common phenomena. It used to be associated with psychosis, but that has since been debunked and it's now considered just a perfectly healthy part of the human brain. We seek out patterns. And this could be also completely unrelated to divination and the conscious practice of trying to seek out shapes. Pareidolia is more, from my understanding, is more when it happens by accident. And Carl Sagan argues that it's actually a survival technique. It's something that we've needed. Um, you need to sort of have the ability to recognize faces from a distance or faces in the dark as a survival mechanism. However, pareidolia doesn't just pertain to seeing faces specifically, from what I understand. It also has to do with just seeing meaningful shapes in otherwise ambiguous mediums. But I don't want to get like too far into that because that's really not what this is about. But I just wanted to mention that as a term since we're talking about this. So we are running out of time here, but I did want to tell you about an Aztec belief that I find very beautiful. Uh, I've been taking this course called Prediction X, I believe is what it's called. Uh, Harvard has this division, I guess you could say, called Harvard X. Um, and I've been taking this this course, and I don't want to give the impression this is not like a semester-long course from an accredited university. These courses are short and simple um, and free, I believe, as long as you don't want the certificate, which I don't want, and so I've been taking it for free. Um, but I believe this one is called Prediction X. I'll, I'll link it below if you want to take it. It's been very interesting. But they have like a little module on Aztec forms of divination um, and prediction. And there's this beautiful story that I would like to relay to you if you have a moment. So here it goes. In the beginning, heaven and earth were much closer together. And in a way, the gods and the humans, our human ancestors, were closer to each other. They were almost on the same plane of existence, which is how historian David Carrasco put it. I keep wanting to say David Carrasco with a Brazilian accent, but I'm pretty sure it's David Carrasco, the historian teaching this portion of the course. But he says that they were almost similarly on the same plane, the gods and the humans, and we had the same sight and the same vision as them. We could see ahead, we could see to the past, we could see all of the unseen things around us. Um, and at one point, the gods decided that this was no longer, that they didn't want us to have the same sight. And so they did the equivalent of breathing onto a mirror. You know, when you breathe on a mirror and the mirror is fogged, you can still sort of see the shapes, but you can't really see very clearly. They did that to our eyes. And so we can still see the world, but we have a very, very narrow view in comparison to the gods and the greater beings. The greater beings, they can see far, far ahead, and they can see far, far behind, and they can see the insides of bodies and the insides of trees and the spectrum of light that us humans can't see, and that that was taken away, in a sense, by this fog over our eyes, this permanent fog. So 
as our ancestors had children and had children, we've inherited this fog over our eyes where we can't clearly see. And those who were born with a little bit more vision, who could see just a little bit better, a little bit less of that fog, they were the ones who were trained um, to be diviners in the Aztec community. They went through training so that they could help others with their gift and their vision. So what I love about this beautiful belief is that we live with a little bit of fog on our eyes. And I guess metaphorically, I find that to be true. I feel like uh, five or six years ago, I had a lot of fog in my eyes. And I'm really not talking about anything mystical or metaphysical here. I'm just talking about the fact that I went about life without seeking anything, without questioning anything. And people do this through many templates in many different forms, not only spirituality. People practice self-reflection through, you know, as I call it, good old-fashioned goal setting or through working with a coach or through reading a book that was really transformational. But I think self-reflection is what lifts the fog from our eyes and makes us question, why am I doing this if I don't like it? Why? (laughs) How can I shift this? How can I change that? How can I take these little daily actions to change my life? And no, it's not a finger snap. No, it's not like bewitched where you wiggle your nose and things change. It's a slow and incremental change. But looking back, on who I was five years ago and how I was living my life, it felt like I had a tremendous fog over my eyes and I wasn't trying to lift it in any way. And using little techniques like this has helped me lift it. Weird and strange as it may sound, seeking out meaning in random shapes and seeking out meaning in the tarot and journaling on it and I don't know, looking at what's happening in the stars and the astrology and listening to astrology podcasts and using all of that as a template has helped me to lift the fog over my eyes. I mean, I'm taking I'm taking a course on divination and that's something that's on my to-do list now as part of my work. That's I'm so I'm so grateful for that and so and so blessed and I feel blessed and I feel grateful and also I like to acknowledge that I created that 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 is a part of my life that I created that that's a part of my life now and that's a part of my work and what I get to do I get to do things like that that are so fun and so beautiful and nourish me and it was through the slow and sometimes painful process of self-reflection and slowly changing my life so All that being said, uh, we are doing a month-long challenge in November in my Occultist Lab community on Patreon, um, where we are going into the Discord chats every day, and we're seeking meaning and shapes. And it's been super fun so far, every day. We're sometimes even posting pictures, if we can snap a picture of the shapes that we've seen, and helping each other interpret it, and giving opinions, and cheering each other on. And I feel so grateful to have such a cool community where we can just talk about, I don't know, weird stuff like that and and really support each other um, in that process. So the challenge is called Divination in the Ordinary. 
Um, I will have all of the information linked below. And if you would like to join our community, this is available at the $5 a month level and you'll get access to all of those secret podcasts I'm always talking about, the personal ones that are locked from the public. Um, Altogether a total of somewhere around 70, 80 episodes, I believe. Plus, you'll get access to this really cool challenge and all of my printables. So I hope to see you there in November. You can hop in at any point in the challenge. You'll never be late. Um, And yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of the department. And stay mysterious.